from Psalm 37. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for your illumination on this text, and we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would guide us in how to fulfill and follow your words. We thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, This text seems pretty straightforward, and uh, I wish it were uh, really easy to have gone through, but uh, I ran into troubles, so I'll share those with you. Uh, First off, off, flip back to 37, uh, verse 1, and just prior to verse 1, I guess you'd call it zero, are the words, a psalm of David. So now we know David wrote this. This is part of the inspired word of God. I have been young and now I am old. So we know it's David writing when he's older. I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. Uh, There is a text similar to this, at least part of it anyway, in Hebrews. Hebrews 13.5. And in Hebrews 13.5, we read this. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So pretty pretty similar. Never leave you nor forsake you. And actually, the writer of Hebrews is most likely quoting from what Moses told Joshua when he knew he was going to die. He encouraged him in the faith and he said, God will never leave you nor forsake you. Then when Joshua did take over after Moses had died, Uh, God appeared to Joshua and said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what's interesting is that the writer of Hebrews applies that to all of us. So see, this isn't some Old Testament thing that was written only to the Jews. It was written to us as well. And so God tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So now back to Psalm 37, verse 25. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. But the problem I have here is that David himself experienced both of these. Turn to 37.1. We know it's David, right? A psalm of David. Turn to 22, verse 1, or or verse 0, as I said. To the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. So David wrote this. He wrote Psalm 22. What's verse 1 say in Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So David himself expressed having been forsaken by God in these words. Now we know that this was a prophecy concerning Christ because Christ then said the same things while on the cross. But we know also that when a writer writes these things, they're typically experiencing them too. And so David is writing about being, feeling anyway, forsaken by God. And then I want you to turn with me, if you, if you want to anyway, but to 1 Samuel 21. And, and Phil just uh, covered this a while ago. 1 Samuel 21, verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, de- detained before God, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite. And Doeg the Edomite watched David receive bread from the high priest Ahimelech. And when David had shown up there with his men, he was on the run from Saul. 
And he said, do you have anything to eat and do you have any weapons? Now, you might say this is not him begging bread, but he was in dire straits and he came there asking for food. Now, begging is asking. Perhaps there is more to it, of course, because begging is, in, is imploring. And yet David did implore of Ahimelech for food and weapons. So now, David himself then, had been at times forsaken and had been at times begging bread. Yet, he says in Psalm 37, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Now see, one of the wonderful things about believing in inerrancy is that it really, you know the answer is here. You just have to seek the answer. God doesn't make it easy. It would be so easy if I didn't believe in inerrancy to say, oh, you know, scriptural error, you know, scribal error. Don't have to worry about solving that. And then you just make up whatever you want. It's very convenient. And yet, when you believe in inerrancy, it's God driving you into the word to say, answer it, Rod. You have to figure this out. And God doesn't often give you the answer that easily. You, have, you must go seek it. So now, what could it mean then? So now, does this mean that Christians will never be in want or in need? Absolutely not. I've talked about that recently with the, in the life of Job. We know that Christians are often in this situation by God's design because he wants to test you. And it's also a form of persecution. We know that the evil one wants to make our lives miserable. And God allows that. So you see both of them in Job. You see God allowing Satan to persecute him, and you're seeing him being persecuted. You see both extremes evident. Now, I believe both of these can be answered about the righteous being forsaken and the descendants begging bread, but I want to add a little bit more to this. First, let's go to 1 Corinthians 5, and you ask yourself, okay, what does it mean then? If David can say these words then what does what we see as being forsaken or begging bread really mean? It cannot mean what David said. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, we hear Paul instructing the Corinthian church, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So my question to you is this, is this an instance of God forsaking someone or this church that Paul is admonishing to forsake someone? See, because I think this verse really cuts to the heart of what is at stake here. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So see, God is distinguishing between our earthly experience and our heavenly experience. Our earthly trials and this spirit within us that goes on, right? To be renewed in a glorious new flesh, free from the sin that indwells this one. So we see evidence here that this, that God does in delivering him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, is not being forsaken at all. It's being saved. It's being protected. And so you always have two things at work when you see any evidence of a Christian going through suffering on the earth. You see that Christian being strengthened or protected, actually, against greater evil, as is the case here. And you also see God getting the glory. So God is getting his way. So when we see someone that we love, someone that we believe to be a Christian going through incredible difficulty, you know those two things are at work. 
you know God is doing this, not only for their good and for the good of the church, but for his own glory. So, if the righteous are begging bread, what is the question here? So let's say that you find a flaw in my reasoning and say, no, David probably wasn't begging bread. He was just asking, you know. And how did he know he was going to get bread? He just asked for food. So we get nitpicky, right? But we know that that isn't how God works. But there is another, even better illustration of the righteous begging bread. And let's go to Luke 7. Luke 7, verses 19 through 23. Oh, this is not it. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. I, I I got the writing wrong. Where am I? Well, I'll just tell you the story, right? So we all know the story of Lazarus, but the thing that I wanted to confirm and why I wrote the text down wrong uh, is this. Lazarus, 16? Oh, okay, Luke 16. Luke 16, and probably starting at 19. All right, yes. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. So now we see the destiny of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. Lazarus went to heaven. And the rich man went to Hades, the holding place for those that will eventually go to hell. What I wanted to show you, though, is that this man was a beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, and he was laid at the gate of this rich man, desiring to be fed from the crumbs of the rich man's table. This was a righteous man. He went to heaven, and yet he was begging bread. Begging bread, by the way, from an unbeliever even. And so the question is, how do we reconcile this then? David said, I have not seen the righteous, the descendants of the righteous begging bread. So we could say, okay, maybe it is that. Maybe Lazarus was not the descendant of the righteous. Maybe he was saved late in life. Maybe. We don't know. We don't know anything much anyway about Lazarus. But that also kind of dodges the bullet in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable. So the question is this. I believe buried in this story, which we believe to be true because uh, Jesus doesn't state this as a parable. This appears to be a true story. And yet I believe this is a rebuke to the church. This is a rebuke to Lazarus' own family. In other words, let's let the world care for him. This is, this is an, an, uh, a turnaround to the, to the state or to the wealthy. Let's th- let them take care of our issues. Let's not bother the church with this. And so when I see that Lazarus is sick, for instance, he's full of sores. He is an invalid. He was laid at his gate. So this is the righteous people that Lazarus knew not caring for him as they should, as they ought. He's a righteous man. He goes to be in Abraham's bosom. And yet here he is being laid at the gate of a wealthy man who doesn't know God to receive his sustenance. 
So I see this as a rebuke from Christ to these people, the Pharisees of his day, to say, look at what you're doing. Look at what you that even know me and love me are doing. You're abdicating responsibility. And I believe this is what uh, David is talking about in Psalm 37. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or the descendants of the righteous begging for bread. And that's because that's normative. That's what we should see. And yet in Christ's day, and to me this is like an indicator that this is why Christ came at that time. The church has so fallen by the wayside and fallen into behaving like the world that it's time to have it replaced, to have Christ come and begin to renovate it. But so the real point of this whole scripture, though, that I've actually had in Psalm 37 uh, is the next verse. And so I was kind of sidelined by this part because I really needed to work through what exactly does this mean that the righteous are not forsaken and not the descendants not begging bread. And I think I've, I've worked it through anyway to, to my satisfaction, not 100%, maybe 90%. And so I just encourage you guys to work it through too. You have to understand what that means to reconcile these uh, uh, equal truths. But in verse 26, David says this, now he's speaking of the righteous. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. So he's obviously contrasting 25 with 26. He is ever merciful and lends. In other words, he isn't put into the position of being a beggar because God blesses him. And his descendants are blessed as opposed to begging bread in the streets. But we know when we talked about Job that that was the criticism that God levied upon Job's three friends. That that they see this as an ironclad thing, this will always happen. You do this, this, do this. It, the, the, our interaction with God is exactly like a machine. We just punch the buttons and we get the pellets out. We get the food like the rabbits in the cage. Punch the button, you get the pellet. But Job's life is an illustration of the fact that that is not how God works. We might think that at times because we fall into that belief because 98, 99% of the time that's how God acts because that's what his word tells us. But when we begin to presume upon God and when we fall down in what we're supposed to do, he turns it all upside down to show us that he is God and to show us that he wants us to listen and pay attention. So now, this verse though, I think is the heart of it. He is ever merciful and lends and his descendants are blessed. So despite our own difficulties, we always must be merciful and lend. We always must have our hearts open to love. We cannot become bitter. We cannot become selfish and self-pitying. All of that will lead you down the road to hell. You must, despite the difficulties in your own life, work to help others. I don't care how poor you are. It's like the widow with the two mites. She puts them all in there. She gave all of herself to God, and that's what God expects of all of us. He expects, expects us all to be merciful and lend and not expect it back because we know that from another verse. Lend, expecting not to receive it back. Now, I want to read uh, this extended, uh, well, three verses, but from 2 Corinthians. And I hope I got this reference right. Uh, 16 to 18 from chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. 
For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So you will be measured by the way that you reach out to people with generosity when you yourself are hurting. So when we come to the table, this is a plea for God to change us, to make us more like him. So if you see yourself in uh, the uh, position of not extending grace to people, generosity to people, of looking upon people with bitterness because of what they've done to you or, or how they behave, that, like I said, is the road to hell. So when we come to the table, we say, God, please, God, have me give that up. I want to have my life be poured out for you and I want you to make me an ambassador of Christianity and follow truly in the footsteps of Christ. And so as we go to the table, let's expect opposition from unbelievers. Which let's expect character tests from God and yet let's not indulge in any bitterness, any hard feelings. We always must give those up. We almost be ready to forgive. Always ready to forgive. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the challenge of it, the puzzles of it, the uh, incredible benefit that we have as individuals to uh, come before you, to acknowledge your ownership of us, your leadership of us, and the eventual uh, future that we will have with you. Lord, make us a willing and able servants on this earth. Uh, we pray that you would equip us, that your Holy Spirit would guide us, and that we would always be looking to Christ as our pattern. We thank you for all of your many blessings in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.